Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do state <laughs> takeovers work? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me like a really difficult question. Uh, no, right? That that's, that's a question we actually have an answer to. No, there's, a, there's an empirical basis for that answer. And I think there's a kind of theoretical answer. Why, why would state takeovers work, right? Does, does the state in any of our 50 states have the actual capacity to effectively and democratically and equitably run a school district? That's not what states do. And I think we have good reason just if we search our own democratic values, right? We have good reason to have problems with state takeover in that locally elected officials suddenly are powerless. Communities have no way really to exert voice there, um, which renders both voice and exit null for them in most cases. Uh, And I think there's reason... Also, if we're just talking about, you know, a theoretical perspective, there's reason to think that uh, the state would do worse than the district in terms of trying to, to govern schools because of the expectations that are set in a takeover, right? That the state is going to do better and the measure of concern is student standardized test scores. And so the state is going to do things like narrow the curriculum. We have empirical evidence that that happens in takeover conditions, um, that, you know, all sorts of uh, teaching practices that I think are non-ideal will be encouraged in these conditions. So no, not, not generally something that we collectively as a community of scholars and or practitioners would recommend. Well, we are headed to Houston where all of these questions have been playing out in live time. And one of the things that that makes this case study so interesting is exactly what you were just talking about, that that there really, you know, anyone who has looked into this can conclude that the track record of state takeovers has been pretty dismal, including right here where we are in Massachusetts. But, you know, the other thing is that anyone who's been paying attention to Texas knows that the governor of that fine state spends seemingly all of his time advocating for moving students into private schools that aren't held to the same accountability standards as the ones in the Houston schools that he's now so intent on assisting. Yeah, you definitely have to have both sides of your mouth in a full working order in order to be able to carry out the kind of rhetorical moves that he's currently engaged in. Well, that's one of the things that made this episode so challenging for me, Jack, having to speak out of both sides of my mouth. (laughs) 
Now to the main event, we're headed to Houston, where back in June, the state formally took control of the Houston Independent School District, or HISD. This is a story with a long and complicated backstory that would require a multi-part series to tell. So we're beginning the tale in the more recent past. Ruth Kravitz runs Community Voices for Public Education, which is loudly dedicated to winning back Houston's control over its schools. She is an expert on all things takeover, including the law passed in 2021 that gave school districts a temporary reprieve from test-based accountability, but gave the state all sorts of new powers in return. So it was essentially one of those deals in which you gain one thing and you lose three horrible things. So what they gained was one year pause in test scores. And what the public, teachers, school districts, and really everyone in Texas lost is the state expanded accountability sanctions to both D and F rated schools. They expanded the final and unappealable authority of the Texas Education Agency to essentially investigate any school district at any moment, which essentially will trigger state takeover of any school district across the state of Texas based on test scores. A little more about Ruth. She taught math and many other things in Houston for almost three decades before retiring in 2020. And she is a veritable encyclopedia when it comes to understanding Texas education policy. But like just about everybody I spoke to for this episode, she argues that what's happening in Houston isn't really about education. It's about politics. So basically, the state can, on one hand, dismantle public education in Texas by pushing vouchers. And on the other hand, where it doesn't work in those pesky communities that tend to vote blue across the state of Texas, because this is truly targeting communities with strong black and brown political participation, they can uh, trigger takeover simply because of the fact that schools, because they're super underfunded, can't meet all special ed guidelines, so you can't win for losing. We'll give you an unfunded mandate, we'll hold you accountable to it, and then we'll blame you for it, and then we'll shame you for it, and then we'll close your school district. A little more background on the Houston takeover and what triggered it. By law, Texas can now take over any district with a school that doesn't meet accountability standards for five years in a row. While Houston, which has nearly 275 schools serving close to 200,000 students, earned an overall B rating from the state, one of its schools met that criteria, Q takeover. That enabled the state education chief, who was an appointee of Republican Governor Greg Abbott, to replace the elected school board with a hand-picked governing body and to appoint a superintendent. So a lot of appointing going on. And that superintendent, Mike Miles, has a very particular view of what it takes to turn schools around. That approach includes strict discipline, a standardized scripted curriculum, and timers. Lots of timers. Let's just say that Ruth is not a fan. There's no other way to say it but nefarious. It is purposeful, it is mean-spirited, and it is designed to allow people in more affluent communities to maintain some facsimile of a public school and people in under-resourced communities, primarily black and brown communities, to see their schools turned into sterile, cold, cookie-colored, militarized schools. There's timers that go off every four minutes where you, as a teacher, must check for understanding. It's not that checking for understanding is bad. It's just requiring teachers to do it every four minutes. And if they don't, they will be reprimanded. 
This will create fear and sorrow and a rigidity on the part of teachers, great teachers and novice teachers alike that will permeate to students and students will feel not joyful and happy and engaged in learning, but diminished and demeaned. We will be hearing from some teachers who are on the front lines of these policy changes momentarily. But first, I've asked Domingo Morel, who is an expert on school takeovers, to give us some context for what's happening in Houston. He is the author of Takeover, Race, Education, and American Democracy. And since he last joined us on the pod in 2018, a lot has happened. He's now at NYU, and he has a new book out. It's called Developing Scholars, Race, Politics, and the pursuit of higher education. And that's not all that's changed. Domingo says that since he started studying school takeovers, he's noticed a big difference in the way that states justify what they're up to. They're not even concerned with people thinking that they're going to intervene to improve the schools. In the late 1980s, early 1990s, even early 2000s, states were really concerned with seeming like there were legitimate presence in these localities and really wanted to show that they were going to improve the schools. But we're entering a phase where that's not even a concern anymore. I think there's not a better example than Houston. Domingo says that the very first question he typically gets from folks in places like Houston is the one I put to Jack at the start of the episode. Do state takeovers work? And thanks to the research of Domingo and others, the verdict is in. But now, you know, we have enough research to show that they don't improve. You know, my research in particular, which is focused on how communities are affected by this, is just really, really harmful. And so I think people are now realizing in ways that maybe was not the case several years ago, that these state takeovers, while states have for a very long time said that they're coming in to improve the schools, that is really hard to make a compelling argument that that's what's happening here that Houston is not a failing school district by any measure. It has challenges like many school districts across the country, but to justify the removal of the locally elected school board and everything else that is happening in the school district, I think people are seeing what this is all about. In Domingo's book, he makes the case that we have to understand the rise of state takeovers as a response to the growing political power of Black and Latino voters in cities. That is still the case today, especially when you consider that Houston is a big blue city in a very red state. So in the case of Texas, where you have a Republican-led, you know, state political power base with the governor being a Republican, the state legislature being led by Republicans in a city like Houston, where, you know, the majority of citizens, there are people of color and identify as Democratic. It just leads to these types of political tensions. Right. And in the case of Houston, what we are seeing is the wish among state lawmakers and state authorities to impose certain policies as it relates to education to the city of Houston that the residents do not want. And so the state comes in and in order to impose these policies, you need to remove the opposition. And so that's the locally elected school board. That's the teachers and their organizing mechanism, which is the unions, right? You need to remove these political players out of the arena to impose these policies. And so Houston in this way looks like every other city that experiences takeover for the most part. Okay, so according to Domingo, state takeovers like the one playing out right now in Houston or the one that was just threatened in Tulsa are pretty much the same as they ever were. What's different now is the absence of bipartisan respectability and the need for legitimacy. 
takeovers 30 years in the making have always been led by Republicans, right? And so in order for a state to take over a local school district, a law needs to be passed. And most of these laws are being passed, you know, over time by Republican governors and Republican state legislatures. So that has been the case. The difference that I do think we are starting to see a difference here is that for the first, you know, let's say 30 years of this type of intervention, states were really concerned with how localities perceived their presence, how other state officials were thinking about the presence of states and localities. And so that concern to me is no longer a concern for these state authorities, right? And so the DeSantis's of the world and other Republican governors like Abbott in Texas, I don't think that they're really concerned with what people are saying. They have an agenda and that agenda is pretty clear and they're not really concerned with seeming like whether they're a legitimate authority in this or not. Now, I find Domingo's argument very convincing, and I can't recommend his book highly enough. But I'm still trying to wrap my head around how officials in Texas seem to be singing two completely contradictory tunes when it comes to education policy. That on the one hand, they had no choice but to take over the Houston schools because of achievement. And on the other, the goal is to move as many kids as possible into private religious schools where the state doesn't measure achievement. Andrew Kirk is a ninth grade geography teacher. He's also the father of a four-year-old who close listeners may discern playing in the background. And Andrew sees a common thrust to education policy in Texas these days. It's really attached to a broader project of neoliberalism in education. Teachers have a lot less autonomy. I think it's something that actually works pretty well in tandem with the censorship that we're seeing at a state level. It's, it's a different kind of censorship, but they both act as a type of labor discipline and a restriction on teachers' autonomy. So I think it should be understood in that context. You may have noticed that I didn't mention where Andrew teaches. That would be Dallas, the district that Mike Miles was previously tasked with turning around. What they did in Dallas and are continuing to do is promote regimentation, just narrowing of the curriculum to what's tested. The test is the curriculum, essentially. And they don't even result in authentic learning. You can see that when you compare the data for something like our state test, which is used to promote Miles and his policies, with something like the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, where Dallas has been declining in most areas relative to peers. It's just score inflation. Teachers are learning patterns in the content of these tests. They're aligning their classroom practice to that content. And you're just seeing what look like these gains, but they're very limited and they just reflect this sort of rote, scripted approach to teaching and learning. Andrew is also a member of the executive board of the American Federation of Teachers in Dallas. It's a big part of why he views what's happening to teachers in places like Dallas and Houston through a labor lens. And he says that one thing those of us in blue states really need to understand is the extent to which what he calls labor discipline is already baked into Texas law. We don't have bargaining. We don't have any kind of recognized right to strike. There are strong penalties attached to doing so. There were limited sick outs in some districts during the early pandemic, but nothing on the scale that you might have seen elsewhere. We work within a pretty limited framework, but that doesn't mean that we're powerless. It's just it looks very different in our in our context. 
There's a word that Andrew used in telling me about the sort of reform that his district went through and that Houston is going through now. The word is Taylorism. Frederick Taylor, of course, was a mechanical engineer who came up with something called scientific management in the late 19th century. And the idea was basically that jobs that involved manual labor could be broken down into specific routinized tasks that workers could do without too much thinking. And their managers could assess them without any real understanding of what the job entailed. The teaching equivalent of this would be delivering lessons from a script, while an administrator with no particular content knowledge taps away at their laptop. I wanted to understand what this looks like from the point of view of a teacher. First up is Melissa Yarborough. She grew up in Louisiana and has been teaching in Baton Rouge. And then during the pandemic, Melissa and her spouse, who's from Mexico, decided that they were ready for a change. It was one of those COVID decisions. Let's reassess our lives because everything has shut down and we moved to Houston. People say, why? Did you come for work? No, just we made a life choice. The the rumors in Baton Rouge are Houston is better. Houston schools are better. They're going to have more bilingual programs. Baton Rouge only has two. We looked at Houston. It had like 15 for elementary alone. All of that's changed. We made that move two years ago, and I did not expect this to happen. So Melissa applies for a teaching job, and she gets hired to teach English language arts and ESL at a high-poverty school in Houston. And as she quickly learns, that means preparing students for the high-stakes spring ritual known as the STAR test. I joined the school and I'm asking, what's the curriculum? Where's the curriculum? You know, is there a book we're working with? And I was given a packet of practice tests. I was like, okay, that's cool. Where's the curriculum? This is the curriculum. Oh, what are the lessons like? This is it. They treated me like I was crazy. What do you mean? This packet is the lesson. You just teach it. The only way to get kids to pass the test in the spring is to make All class lessons look like the tests. Melissa is at one of the 28 schools that are part of the quote-unquote new education system, and she says that she was initially hopeful that the additional resources and support might mean an improvement over her school's test-heavy focus. Instead, the opposite has happened. The teachers have to use the lesson slides that people at the district are making. And by the way, they're understaffed and they're building the plane while they fly it. They're only a week ahead. So there's no real roadmap. You don't know where you're going. It's like you're listening to the GPS. Okay, they told me to turn left. I'm going to turn left, but I have no idea. Are we going to Michigan? Are we driving to Mexico? Like, where are we going? That's against best practice. Best practice is know your end goal. For Melissa and her co-workers at these NES schools, teaching now means reading from a script that tells her what to say, how to say it, even when to feign surprise. While the stated purpose of this experiment is to, quote, dramatically improve outcomes for students, Melissa sees a different goal, making education teacher-proof. Everything that the superintendent has ever said since he started on June 1st is geared at teachers are the problem. Teachers are the problem. We've got to fix the teachers. And it's insulting. It is very nearsighted. It is simply dumb. I know a teacher who's leaving the district already, and I hear rumors of many more. They are planning on replacing us with anyone because there's a script. So you don't need to know how to teach. He doesn't want 
teachers who think critically. He wants people who will shut up and read the script because either he truly believes that that's going to save education and he's misguided in that, or he truly wants to ruin public schools so that everything can be shut down and chartered and privatized, which sounds more like Abbott's plan. And Melissa is not alone in feeling that way. I heard similar statements from everyone I talked to for this episode, and it's hard to blame them for doubting the sincerity of state officials. In the months since the state took over the Houston schools, there's been a steady drip, drip, drip of news stories that cast further doubt on the state's motives, like this recent Texas Tribune ProPublica collaboration. Texas schools chief took over Houston district, but has let underperforming charter networks expand. Or this Texas Observer piece, teachers strong-arm to get on board with Houston schools takeover. And here's the thing, going after teachers because they won't stick to the script only adds to the perception that there's something unsavory happening in Houston. So I'm Daniel Santos. I live in Houston. I am an immigrant from Mexico, but now I'm a citizen. I mean, that's important because for a long time I couldn't vote. I teach a dangerous subject in Texas. I teach history. Daniel has been teaching in Houston for 17 years, and he says that while the takeover and Greg Abbott's pet project of having the state pick up the tab for private religious schools may seem different, they're not. These experiments that our board of managers has enabled a state-installed superintendent to implement do not serve the needs of students that attend my school. But it's in order to feed this narrative so that Governor Abbott and many conservative Republicans can showcase why school vouchers and privatization would be the best alternative to public education. And here is Houston, the largest school district in Texas, one of the largest in the nation, and use us as the reason, the model, the rationale to explore and justify another approach to educating our children. Daniel mentioned that he's an immigrant, as are many of the students in his school. That's important here because it means that the state's disenfranchisement of local voters is personal to him. The flavor is there. It is an anti-democratic tactic. Politically in Texas, all three branches are controlled by the same political party. This is the best strategy that they can implement because they are outnumbered in cities like ours that are as diverse as ours in Houston and Austin, and we've seen it even across the country. And we dare to expose that. We dare to tell the emperor, Emperor Greg Abbott, you have no clothes. We know what this is about. This isn't about helping students of color or helping schools that have been historically underserved. This is about power. This is about disenfranchisement. We know what this is about. Of course, democracy doesn't just mean voting. I asked Daniel what his students might say if somebody actually asked them what it would take to dramatically improve their outcomes. I love that question. 
I think my students, if they had an opportunity, and I would encourage them, they're very bright and I empower them to speak up. They would ask for smaller class sizes. They would ask for greater investment, uh, greater diversity in the curriculum, greater differentiation to honor how they learn um, and, and provide different opportunities for them to demonstrate that they are the experts that they know they are in the curriculum and in their gifts. I sponsor the Chess Club and Student Congress. And some years ago, we attended a conference of the Student Council at a school on the other side of town. (laughs) It broke my heart when, as we attended the conference, how many of my students were whispering, oh, look what they have, oh, look at what they have. It broke my heart, and they would confess to me, why do we not have that? It's the same school district. It is the same Houston Independent School District. I hope maybe one day, if Greg Abbott and the Education Commissioner, Mike Morath, had the courage or the integrity to ask my students, I think that's what they would say, and I hope that they would open their hearts and listen to what our students and our parents want. We're going to meet one of those parents right now. Jessica Campos has three kids who attend Houston Public Schools, ranging from ages three up to high school. I caught up with her while she was driving them around. So you may notice that the audio quality is not the greatest, but Jessica's passion is undeniable. I'm a proud mom. I'm an involved mom. I want to be on top of my kids because I think education is very important. I am a ninth grade dropout and I don't want that for my kids. I have a lot of insecurities and lately those insecurities are being put away. It's it's like I'm getting so many calls from people saying how great I am and it makes me so emotional. Jessica heard about the takeover from teachers at her kids' school. She describes the school community as small and closely knit. So the idea that the teachers were the problem didn't make a lot of sense to her. I don't think teachers get into the business thinking, oh, I can't wait to be a teacher and read a script. I think it's more along the lines of, I can't wait to create great curriculum for these kids to be inspired, and I can't wait to make an impact on a child. I think that that's more of what teachers are looking for. And when you've got scripted curriculum, not all children are the same. Not all children can learn the same. And I look at it this way because I have children with different disabilities. Now, if you've ever been part of any kind of organizing campaign, you have experienced the moment when somebody finds their voice and just sort of comes alive. Well, that person in Houston is Jessica. What started as an effort to translate materials about the takeover into Spanish morphed into a protest with Jessica speaking up for other parents who couldn't. Everyone was looking at me. Everyone was waiting for me to act and to say what I wanted to say. And I remember standing outside. I'm going to get emotional because a lot of these people are immigrants who are afraid to speak. So they were so scared, but they stood with me. And when the people from the HISD building came outside to talk to us, there were some officers that were outside too. And my ladies started to get scared. And I said, don't be scared. They can't do anything to us. The gentleman said, we would like to ask you to please move to the outside of the fence. And I told him, you know what, sir? I know that you're just the messenger, but you can tell Mr. Miles that Jessica Campos says we're not going anywhere. We are in our right to be here. 
And when I said that, the gentleman said, yes, ma'am, I will let him know. Way back at the very start of the episode, we met Ruth Kravitz, who heads up Community Voices for Public Education. Jessica Campos and teacher Melissa Yarborough are both active participants in that group. And it is fitting that while I was putting this episode together, the Texas Monthly did a feature story about Ruth. The title was, Superintendent Mike Miles Has Big Plans for Houston ISD, A Five-Foot-Tall Retired Teacher Stands in His Way. I'm guessing that Ruth would probably add, quote, and an army of parents and educators to that title. Because people are speaking out forcefully, because we've had read-ins where 300 parents showed up, which in Houston is a lot, because we've been protesting since January, because parents and teachers have been going to drop-off lines and pick-up lines and having house meetings in their house saying, this is what's happening in our city and this is why it's not good, people have been able to successfully push back against some of his excesses. Some of the policies that the superintendent has had to backtrack on include eliminating recess at some elementary schools, banning teachers from saying bad stuff about him or his ideas to the media, and that requirement that teachers stop teaching every four minutes for an assessment. That's gone too. But the larger battle over democracy in the state's largest school district rages on, and Ruth is looking for all the help she can get. People can do whatever they are able to do to save our last profoundly important public good, which is public education. And that can mean signing a petition. That can mean going to drop off line. That can mean inviting 10 of your friends over to your house for wine and cheese or donuts and punch and talking about the takeover. That can mean volunteering in your neighbor's school, not your school, but your neighbor's school where the conditions are most militarized and egregious and being a witness to that which shouldn't be happening. And at some level, using that information to stop this takeover instead of waiting, what is it, 19 years that New Orleans has been taken over and 16 years for Philadelphia and it's still going on largely. I don't want this to be the case in 20 years and the louder people get, the faster we can reclaim our democracy. A huge thanks to everyone who assisted with this episode. Ruth Kravitz, Domingo Morell, Andrew Kirk, Melissa Yarborough, Daniel Santos, and Jessica Campos. And Jack and I will be right back to talk more about the ever-evolving case for school takeovers. And of course, we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon supporters. We often get criticized on this program for not focusing enough on quote-unquote what works in schools. No more. We're headed to the schools run by the military, the subject of a recent New York Times story to study the secret sauce. If this speaks to you, just head over to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. So, Jack, we obviously learned a lot about Houston recording this episode. And I think the thing that I am still sort of working over in my mind is how easily these kind of favored remedies from a certain era of education reform, how easily they can live aside the the conservative 
efforts that we're seeing right now in places like Florida and Texas to drive a very particular cultural program through the public schools. And because I think that, you know, on, on paper, it seems like they're really contradictory, right? That, that the, the obsession with test scores seems very yesteryear and that today conservatives are overwhelmingly focused on things like culture war and private school vouchers. But I think as some of our guests made a really compelling point, you know, like it kind of all ends up in the same place, right? That you you end up with teachers who are deprofessionalized and unorganized. And you, you know, you have a, a basically a privatization agenda that just, you know, like some of it is privatization in the religious sense and some of it is privatization in the charter sense, but you've still managed to move a key function of the state out from um, under public control. Yeah, I think that it isn't so different from something we've talked about previously on the show, which is Arizona's education debit card. And you can ask a question about that, which we've asked before, which is, why on earth would you have no oversight with regard to how the dollars that end up loaded on these debit cards get spent? And the answer that you and I have come to is that proponents of the so-called education debit card don't really care how those dollars get spent as long as those dollars get pulled out of the public schools because their long-term project is to dismantle public education and to move people into a privatized market that is run through vouchers or neo-vouchers. And if that is your perspective, then something like a state takeover is also convenient in that it undermines the stability of the public education system. And so you may be opposed to the idea of using student standardized test scores as a mechanism for measuring school quality. But if your long-term project is about dismantling public education, then the kind of chaos and disruption that a state takeover introduces is beneficial to that long-term aim of destabilizing the public schools. And if what the result of this is, is students and families leaving Houston public schools and taking advantage of vouchery type programs, then that's a win for conservatives. And so I think this once more shows us the kind of naive approach that centrist Democrats took to the kind of longstanding bipartisan consensus around school choice and test-based accountability, right? That they thought this was a truce to end all education uh, partisanship, that the left and the right would come together around the two central policy programs of the 21st century for the first couple of decades. Charter schools as a negotiated truce around school choice, right? Vouchers were dead as far as people like Cory Booker understood it. And test-based accountability was going to usher in a long-standing uh, era of performance management. And for many on the right, that was a way station. Uh, that was never the final truce. It was just a kind of 
temporary rest area uh, on their way, on their long march toward this vision of a totally privatized market-based system. And, and for many on the right, it was always clear that using standardized test scores as a mechanism for introducing disruption to the public education system, even if that was not the intent of everyone uh, in that kind of consensus policy era that we're now kind of at the tail end of, um, was was always on the radar of those uh, with this bigger political project. Well, Jack, I can imagine that there are some listeners who are thinking to themselves at this very moment, Another, yet another episode has come and gone with Jack and Jennifer not talking at all about what works, you know, <laughs> why they just harp and criticize, complain. That's right. Neg- negativity all day long from us. Well, I thought that for this episode's In the Weeds segment, we would do just that. We would immerse ourselves in a success story. And that Mm. success story is about the schools that are run by the U.S. military, which it turns out are top performers. We need to know why. We're going to dig into that in the weeds. So if you'd like to join us, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast, and you'll see a list of the various extras you can get just by throwing a little financial support our way each month. We do a custom reading list for each episode. So this episode, for example, you will get a list of of readings about state takeovers and how they've fallen short over the years. Of course, you don't have to become a Patreon supporter to support the show, do you, Jack? No, that's right. Uh, If you're interested in what works, there are lots of ways to support the show. Uh, And so let's step into the What Works Clearinghouse here for a moment. Um, One of the things that works is making sure that you are a subscriber so that whenever a new episode drops, it automatically downloads onto your device. Another thing that we know works is sharing via word of mouth or even just force-feeding friends and colleagues the show. We grow because uh, we are a community here. Uh, We don't advertise. We don't end up, you know, embedded in Ira Glass's show. Uh, We grow because you do things to spread the word, and we appreciate that. Uh, We also know that it works when you share ideas that you have uh, for future shows. We now are buried under a backlog of those ideas, but the mailbag is always a fun place for us. So uh, check out our website, haveyouheardpodcast.com. Follow us on social media. We are now also on Blue Sky. So look for Have You Heard? I think it's just Have You Heard. We're not Have You Heard Pod over there uh, because we're early adopters, I think. Uh, And we're at Have You Heard Pod on the Hell site, formerly known as Twitter. And Ira Glass, if you're listening and you do want to embed us, we we would probably be okay with that. Yeah, we're, we're good. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard.